Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin is home to the nation's only master cheesemakers program that provides innovative cheesemakers with continuing education opportunities? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm your host, Kathy Irway. We're here on a Sunday in Brooklyn, and in February, it's actually just um, just after the Lunar New Year, so Gong Chi Fatsad, anyone celebrating? Um, but we're going to talk, we're going to take a little different tack today <laughs> than that. We're going to talk with about hippie food, and actually this morning, I didn't realize I was eating something that was very much in the vein or in the legacy of hippie food, but I ate granola and yogurt this morning. I was actually kind of proud of myself being a little healthy, but that's a very normal thing nowadays. And I didn't really think of how it had become so through that through this amazing food movement that is chronicled in the book I'm holding right now. It's wonderful. It's called Hippie Food, How Back to the Landers, Long Hairs, and Revolutionaries Change the Way We Eat. And the author is Jonathan Kaufman, who's on the phone right now from San Francisco. Hi, Jonathan. Hey, Kathy. Thanks for having me on the show. Hey, thanks so much. And um, so you're a longtime uh, James Beard Award-winning staff writer at the San Francisco Chronicle, restaurant critic. And um, this is, uh, by the way, congratulations. You guys recently launched a really cool guide to Chinese food in the Bay Area. Yeah, magazine. we've been working yeah. on that for about uh, six to eight months. So it's a it's a guide to regional Chinese cuisines in, in the Bay Area with with about thirty six restaurants representing seventeen cuisines. Wow, that's extensive. It looked amazing, by the way, too. Looked really Thank cool. You. Thank you. Um, so this is looking to be a really really great year of the dog for you. Um, yeah. Hippie food has <laughs> so far it has really <laughs> shaped up pretty well. Nice. Yeah, hippie food has gotten some amazing accolades. Well deserved, but um, thank you. And it's been a long, long work for you. Five years or so researching and writing. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> writing a book while you have a full time writing job is oh, um, is a little taxing sometimes. But yeah. it was also, I mean, it was also such a pleasure to research, uh, getting to talk to hundreds of people who had these amazing, you know, lives in their teenage and twenty years. That that would that kept me going. I really love the anecdote you write that when you ask a lot of people, how did this, um, you know, how did this happen? Or how did you get the idea to do that? And a lot of people said magic (laughs) (laughs) as their answer. Uh, (laughs) No, but uh, so this book is about how this very radical movement of hippies, counterculturists, and so forth um, really changed the way we eat. And, um, you, you know, we live now in a world where brown rice whole wheat bread is de facto um, choices. Um, but also specifically talking about like the nitty gritty of hippie food or the the grainy, crunchy granola <laughs> of hippie food. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is actually your comfort food. 
right? This is what you it grew really up is. On. I had you know I, for for years I had these like people would talk about their comfort food and you know I would hear stories about you know mashed potatoes and right. uh, macaroni and cheese and to me like the thing that resets my system is um, you know a big plate of brown rice with tofu stir fry with just like simple tamari sauce. It's just like. I don't know. It just it comforts me, and also comforts me that I feel like I'm being healthy. Yeah, um, and that's 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 a not so unusual thing because you're right. You know, a vast generation of people, not just in the cities, not just in urban areas, but where you grew up in Indiana, for instance, followed this this wave of eating. Yeah, so. and and you know that was. When I was, uh, you know, both pitching the book to publishers and, um, and you know, as I was trying to think about how to structure the book, uh, you know, I kept getting these questions. Oh, well, this was a coastal movement. Uh, you know, obviously mm-hmm. this, this wasn't, you know, this was, this was only sort of the, young, the hippie enclaves. But mm-hmm. as somebody who grew up with politically liberal parents in a small town in Indiana, and we were eating all of this food, I wondered, like, how had the food spread so far across the country so quickly in the 70s? Mm-hmm. To get a- and, and it wasn't magic. <laughs> hey, <laughs> you <laughs> never know. Magic. Maybe magic mushroom. No. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> um, no. To give people a slice of what this book is all about, I I thought I'd read um, one uh, paragraph from the intro, if that's all right. Sure. Great. So you're right. Young Americans wanted to strip their cuisine back to its pre-industrial roots. And then they tried to figure out what they should eat instead of the military-industrial trash. A reactionary generation sought counsel from the fringes. They found it in health food faddists, rogue nutritionists, mystical German farmers, Japanese dietary prophets, and nameless cooks from countries that their parents had barely dreamed of visiting. That Harvard nutritionists or newspaper journalists thought these sources were all bunk only validated that the counterculture was on the right track. I think that really succincts a lot of the movements you're going to talk about in this book. And also the momentum and uh, philosophies behind why. Why? Yeah, and oh, you know, when I was talking, another thing, when I was talking to people, um, they would talk a lot about idealism. You know, that, mm-hmm. oh, we were we were trying to create a, a healthier diet. We were creating trying to create a diet that was better for the earth. And but behind that also was fear and disillusionment. Mm-hmm. And so there was this, a real emotional push, you know, this sort of disillusionment over the uh, over you know the civil rights movement or the you know that sort of the abuses that produced the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War and worrying over all of the chemicals that were in the food supply that had been introduced just in the past twenty five years. So there was a there was a real I think there was a critique of what they were eating that was emerging during that time that is still very present today. Yeah, I was really intrigued by um, you know you. This sounds like during this time, um, late 60s, 70s, people were forming an idea around food as being a political thing. Um, eating was a political act, which is something that you know, we talk about a lot on this station, but um, today in the food movement as well. Yeah, and you know, and you can you can see that shift in in cookbooks. You know, if you look at sort of the both the normal cookbooks and health food cookbooks uh, from the early '60s, they they mention nutrition. They'll talk about flavor. Right. They you know, there's there's obviously with some some cookbooks there's like a class aspiration, um, but it really wasn't until the early '70s that the tone became very political and this idea that what we buy and what we put in our in our bodies could 
have these broader reaching effects on on the you know on the on the world. This was all very very radical, very very counterculture then. But I'm looking at this um, this passage you include from the Rainbow Party, um, now no, formerly known as the White Panthers, um, that was written in the Ann Arbor Sun in 1972, and somebody wrote, more and more people are realizing that the industry in control of providing food for the people is in fact ripping them off. The food industry is one small part of the larger corporate structure whose only interest is in making money. And the deadly chemicals that are put into virtually every food on the market shelf is made to make foods last longer, taste better, or look better, blah, 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 but it's destroying your body and, you know, it's energy. Um, it seems like, you know, if not using such harsh words, a lot of people would sort of shrug and take and accept for fact a lot of those ethos today. Um, you know, food is not in- entirely um, intended for the, you know, the in our best interest for health, um, right. but for profit. <laughs> and that was yeah, crazy and then. that's why, you know, in some ways, uh, this is a movement that, that didn't fail necessarily. Yeah. I mean, you know, it didn't convert the entire country to vegetarianism. It didn't, you know, completely change the, the, the agricultural system or, or the way food is distributed because they had all these, these counter, they also had all these like uh, economic goals as well, these anti-capitalist mm. goals. Sure. But at the same time, I think it introduced uh, a critique and also an alternate path that has has only continued to widen as mm-hmm. as time has gone on, right? And become more accessible to people. Sure. Let's talk about some of those. Um, let's let's go back to some of the earliest pioneers. Um, some of these German philosophers or nutritionists are really really interesting. Um, oh, so <laughs> let's go back to California, Northern California, or is it Northern? I don't know. Maybe maybe around um, actually Los Angeles, late fifties. Yeah. Um, Arnold Ehler. Eret. Eret. Oh, sorry. Oh, yes. He was one of my. I, I actually fell in love with the health food movements of yeah. the of the early twentieth century uh, because yeah. they are so far out there at times. Mm-hmm. Arnold Eret was a. Um, he was a German. I guess he became sort of a nutritional guru who moved to the, to Los Angeles after being in a like a proto hippie commune in in uh, you know sort of Central Europe um, before that. And he had this whole theory that all disease was caused by mucus building up in the bloodstream and so he so that you the only way to um sort of clear it from your bloodstream was you couldn't just avoid eating mucus eating mucus producing foods like you know meat and and starches you had to like slowly remove them from your bloodstream or else it would just sort of pour out in this great sort of body revenge of the mucus and you would like you would you would ooze from your you know like from your veins and from your bowels. It was, Definitely fear he factor. He was pretty um, yeah. descriptive in his <laughs> terms about, or in his uh, sort of ideas of what mucus was and what it right. would do but, to the body. But he introduced the idea that you should eat more vegetables and uh, right. eat, essentially you like you you say that he he advertised he advocated a diet that was maybe good for lorikeets or arboreal sloths stewed fruit salad <laughs> yeah, it was all raw boiled with pint, sometimes a little steamed and <laughs> toasted bread um wild or far <laughs> out um, okay. but you know Steve Jobs was following the yeah. diet you know in no. the 1960s it sort of was this thing that people were doing they were fasting and becoming fruitarians partly in response because of his books hey cleanses yeah 
Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, and then we talk about he inspired a lot of people, um, and he and other thinkers around that era of nutritionism and weird um, fad diets. But um, let's talk about a name that you might, a lot of people might know. Um, I forget his first name, but his last name is Bragg. What is Paul Bragg. Yes. So uh, this is he's actually very aptly named. Um, he, (laughs) he was all, he also introduced the idea of beauty, um, being a goal or a a result of eating this diet that he was going around preaching about, um, and selling products about, um, because he would pose with his muscular torso in every single, you know, photo of him. Mm-hmm. So. He was part of this, uh, you know, the, part of the reason that Southern California became such a uh, mecca for health food was that because people had moved there, you know, sort of uh, as a, uh, to, if they had tuberculosis, but then Hollywood swept in. And mm-hmm. so all of a sudden beauty became a big part of the mix. And so Paul, Paul Bragg was kind of the proto um, Gwyneth Paltrow in the right. sense that he was like advocating these you know raw food healthy diets that were supposed to make you beautiful and strong. Mm-hmm. But he also kind of there's I haven't done all the research so I can't really comment on his qualifications. But there right. are some people who have online and they have a lot of doubts about the degrees that he produced um, that, that he claimed mm-hmm. and his daughter-in-law Patricia Bragg is still around. Um, she she. She, he calls her his daughter because they were. Um, she divorced his son, and then he kind of adopted her, and she mm. took over the family business, and and really was the person who made Bragg's liquid amino acids and apple, the cider, apple cider vinegar. vinegar popular. Wow. Well, he also he also was a staunch advocate for live foods, so things yeah, with cultures. Um, no, but also the, uh, you know, the vinegars, right? And the probiotics and mm-hmm, so forth. Mm-hmm. And that's something that is very much uh, a huge, I guess, trend, you could say, today. Yeah. Or, yeah. But in, in, you know, back then they were focused on the idea of vitality because mm-hmm. so much of it was the, they were promising miracle cures. And so vital foods, you know, were, were live and living. But we, we just have a slightly different, we've adopted some of the same products. We've just sort of shifted the way we talk about them. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's jump forward to another entirely different pioneer, but a very influential one, um, macrobiotics. Uh, yeah. So this is one genre of eating that I hear, I think, most made fun of. <laughs> it's <laughs> It kind of has that smack of... Um, you know, going a little too far out there, but I, I'm not sure if that's because it's more known than some of these lesser known sort of mucus whatever diets do. So, <laughs> um, okay, so who is, what's his story, the founder, the guru of macrobiotics? Yeah, George Asawa was uh, born in Japan around the turn of the last century, and he uh, became part of this movement in Japan to rid the Japanese diet of Western influences and return to a, a peasant diet, mm-hmm. uh, which he said was you know responsible for um, the Western diet was responsible for you know ill health, and so he came to the United States in 1960 and started lecturing about how the American diet was causing um, you know heart disease and obesity and cancer, um, and, and that we should eat a local, seasonal, 
you know, organic uh, food, which mm-hmm. all sounds amazing. But sure. then he also believed, um, he had these ideas of what foods were yin and yang that was very different from traditional Chinese notions. And he said you had to balance them in your body. But it, brown rice was the perfect food. And if you ate nothing but brown rice for 10 days, you could cure your body of entire ills, Whoa. of all of its ills. Okay. Uh, I'm sure that's very easy to <laughs> he try. Also believed that <laughs> smoking was yangizing, uh-huh. and that you know if you if you needed to make new friends, you should be eating a little bit more sesame right. seeds toasted okay. and sprinkled with salt on your rice. And if you wanted so some to of his feel... early followers gave mm. themselves scurvy. Oh no! Because <laughs> <laughs> all they were eating was brown rice. <laughs> oh man! Um, so I. I... We have to cut to a quick little commercial break, but I want to talk about how, even though these are, um, you know, there's many more instances of more far-flung cultures that have influenced this movement, this movement is predominantly white. So let's talk a little bit more about that right after a quick little commercial break. Today's program was brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. What do you think of when you hear Wisconsin Cheese? For me, I think cheese curds. Delicious, fresh and squeaky cheese curds. Or deep fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally anyway, anytime, anyplace. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese, the farmstead cheese company behind Pleasant Ridge Reserve. I think of delicious, stinky Limburger and its long storied history. I think of Dunbarton Blue, made by master cheesemaker Chris Raleigh. I think of Roth's Grand Cru Sierchois, which was named 2016's World Championship Cheese, and Satori's Black Pepper Bella Vitano, the 2017 U.S. Championship Cheese. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese with lush grasslands and a glacial water supply that produce the very best milk. Fourth-generation cheesemakers combine old-world tradition with new ideas and the highest standards to make innovative cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. All right, we're back chatting more with Jonathan Kaufman, the author of Hippie Food, How Back to Landers, Long Hairs, and Revolutionaries Change the Way We Eat. Hey, Jonathan, you still there? Yep, still here. Awesome. So, okay, so you write in the beginning that as you were tracing the history and looking around and asking all these folks and pioneers and researching them, you found very little in the way of um, other minorities involved in this movement. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, which is particularly uh, interesting because so many of the culinary influences that the movement was adopting were from right. Asia and, and Central America. Um, you write that, you know, in your chapter all about vegetarians on the curry trail, which is something I think we can all recognize, you know, vegetarian food, curry food, and then bing, bang, boom, you got all these great dishes now being embraced by the hippie food movement. Um, but, uh, you know, a generation, this generation was willing to pluck any idea out of the fringe and test it out, whether it came from occult bookstores, Chinatown acupuncturists, or health food stores. Um they had, you know, they build this new cre- uh, cuisine into existence. Then came the real struggle struggle of making it delicious. 
So where vegetarians were concerned, they looked to sources from from India, China, Japan, and so forth for with long histories of vegetarian cuisine. Um, yeah. Yet, okay, I, I have to say, like, I didn't grow up with hippie food, cause, um, but I came from a half-Chinese household. So um, looking at, you know, tempeh and tofu eaten in the manner of, I, I guess, the back to the landers, um, it looked humorous, um, <laughs> but also more or less like putting tofu in a juxtaposition that was otherwise Western. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a very different genre of food, it seems. Yeah, and so I mean, part of that, I think, is influenced by the fact that, uh, you know, influenced, but the, the United States was 87% white then, mm-hmm. and it was really before the effects of the 1965 immigration shift were kind of taking hold in cities, and, and the, that um, immigrations were pattern, uh, immigration patterns were changing, and the United States was becoming less white, and so you had all of these these uh, sort of counterculture kids who'd grown up in the segregated United States who had ideal, you know, sort of were, were falling in love with the romance of other countries, but mm-hmm. their, their exposure to it was Let's through limit. travel, uh-huh. which had become okay. a lot cheaper, or through this, or through like sort of fantasizing, um, fantasizing about other cultures, or through their interest in uh, Indian and Japanese uh, spiritual traditions. And so it was like they, they had no actual day-to-day exposure with the cuisines that they were, were trying to make. Mm-hmm. And so everything kind of became... Uh, and then they were, they were also trying to make it with whole grains and other right. vegetarian staples. So it just kind of created this mishmash that had very little to do with the originating culture that mm-hmm. they were taking food from. Do you think that this is a unique cuisine of its own? This hippie I food? I do, and I think that's what yeah. I started mm-hmm. trying to write about because... I what I what the, the 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 dishes that I sort of think of as hippie food, um, things like you know steamed vegetables with tahini sauce or nut burgers and loaves, they've they're mostly disappearing. Oh, and so huh. when I realized that they were disappearing, I realized that they had to come from somewhere, and to to look at the cuisine as its own thing, sort of set in time, was the starting point of my all of my research. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's evolved. There- though too i think that um yeah oh as i mean you know part of part of the problem wasn't just that they were adopting all of these new ingredients like brown rice and you know whole wheat bread that they had no idea what to do with Mm -hmm. but it was also that they were trying to make a lot of dishes given the supply the food supply chain of Mm -hmm. you know in america in 1970s um and so what we have access today to is just remarkable. I mean, even in, in Indiana, when I go back to Indiana and go to the grocery store, they have like four aisles of natural foods and like, you know, a huge organic produce selection that includes all of these vegetables that nobody had ever heard of in 1970. Uh-huh. So do you think that um, the hippie food culture and the recipes, you know, that these cookbooks um, of the time sort of cemented, um, uh, do you think that that cuisine has taken a hit in today's day and age where we have terms like cultural appropriation and a lot more yeah. representation of the traditional cuisines of India and China and so forth. Um, yeah. And, you know, Latin American countries too. It, you know, yeah. through, through the lens of what we, we know today and what we think of today. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I also think uh, it's interesting to sort of abstract them from that 
that um, sort of critique as well and sort mm-hmm. of look at how they might have come about. Right, right. In the absence of any sort of uh, understanding and, uh-huh. uh, and, and, and naivete, naivete around race and culture. And yet, it, I think that there's different purposes. Um, nowadays, these terms and the critique of, uh, let's say, cultural appropriation has much been around... Been, uh, profiting off of other people's yeah. cultures. So when we see, you know, very elite sort of like high class bougie circles using turmeric in lattes, it's a little bit different than than saying this scrappy, seeing like a scrap <laughs> cookbook for people who are just very scrappy and um, trying to make tempeh burgers. Right. You know, I mean, so much of that movement was <clears throat> anti-capitalist. It was about right. food for people, not for profit, and mm-hmm. about what you could make on the cheap and how you could eat eat healthfully and how everybody should be eating the, in a way that's more healthfully. And so, I mean, so much of that movement, like so many other food, you know, aspects of food have been have been taken over by sort of high capitalism and, right. and these sort of class aspirations, you know, that I think tainted in a way that's very different. <laughs> yes, very, very different. I think uh, now it's it's curious to see those those parallels continuing, but but uh, for very different ideals, I think. Um, yeah. So you focus your book on the food movements in the U.S., although at times research took you to enclaves in other countries and cities like Montreal, for instance. Um, but you also, but you said, um, you know, the Americans in the U.S. in particular, we have a queer eagerness to abandon the culinary wisdom of the generations that preceded us. Um, why do you think this is distinctly an American thing, or do you? Uh, no, I do. I think to me, it's because I was when I was looking at the motivations for why people were adopting, you know, all of these new foods. It had it had nothing to do with. Uh, the way cuisine develops just sort of wherever you, you know, uh, traditionally, it wasn't about the products that were around them, like what they could harvest from the land uh, and what they could, you know, how they could make subsistence food good, but it was really about making conscious political choices in an era when you could find, uh, you know, lots of products on the shelf that were, you know, it was, it's a... Uh, it's a very different way of looking at creating cuisine. Mm -hmm. Um, There was an awesome review of your book by Michael Pollan recently in the New York Times. Um, He wrote, he mentioned that um, Americans perhaps were not, did not have as deep of roots or not, or didn't have as much of a pride in their own culinary heritage um, in a way that made them not as susceptible to marketers and fad diets and, you know, yeah. junk nutritionists and so forth <laughs> um, than maybe Europeans would and, and other countries who have a very long history behind their cuisine. Mm-hmm. So... I mean, it sort of continues. Like, <laughs> it you know, I mean, we, we hear that turmeric is, is, has antioxidants and, or whatever <laughs> we've decided turmeric has, you know, from the scientific literature. And so... We suddenly we're putting turmeric in lots of things, mm-hmm. or we hear that you know probiotics are good, and so all of a sudden apple cider. We were drinking apple cider for breakfast and making <laughs> apple cider, you know, Shrub sodas. Was it called Schwingle? Or I don't know, <laughs> Swingle, <laughs> <laughs> something like Switchel. Okay, yeah. We um, are a gullible people. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we are. 
um, constantly crazy. So, but you also um, have written and for the New Yorker in a series that was um, about some of the fails of this generation, their failures. So you read about Carob, which was supposed to be a replacement for chocolate. Didn't yeah. go as planned. Carob was the great <laughs> trauma of my youth, oh, no. and what I and, and and every time I would talk about this book uh, with people who were my age, who you know, who were born in the seventies and grew up with it, the the thing that people would bring up was like, oh my god, and then we had to eat carob. <laughs> Why was and in this fact, so when bad? the article from the New Yorker came out, it was like it was like I'd unleashed this sort of wave of <clears throat> horrified nostalgia. From uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> what well, I've never really had it. Why was it so bad? It's because it was. We were told it was chocolate. They they oh. sort of all the recipes in 1970 just sort of omitted chocolate and then replaced it with carob powder and carob chips mm-hmm. and and so and candy bars and health food stores were all made with carob and so kids like us were like impressed. This was this is what we were given and told we could oh, eat, no. whereas everybody around us was eating actual chocolate. <laughs> Oh man, trauma. Um so so what were there any other hugely unsuccessful food replacement attempts the, that you're going to continue <laughs> I think on? that was the worst okay. of them for me. Got I it. mean, I still am no fan of alfalfa sprouts. I yeah. still um yeah, and I do not get the point of wheat germ. Mhm. But uh, those have sort of faded a, a little bit as well. Some have become <laughs> a little bit more mainstream, um, even though they're, you know, they were a little weird. I, I mean, I don't know if kale is part of the, the hippie, I think, somewhat, to some degree. Um, I think it was one of those things that was easy to grow, yeah. and, and it was so earthy and chewy. Mm-hmm. And those were two, you know, when they were trying to, like, rid their diet of processed food, anything that was earthy and chewy and, and mm-hmm. like, dark in hue was better for you. So that's why I think the hippies got associated with kale. And certainly organic food, the, hor- the yeah. word organic, and which that, was... And I, it was really interesting to me how connected that was to the mm-hmm. back-to-the-land movement and mm-hmm. all of these... Uh, sort of counterculture kids who moved to rural areas and then tried picking up farming. And then so they brought all these ideas about, you know, avoiding mm-hmm. pesticides and growing organically to all of these rural areas. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you could almost say that this hippie food is uh, really traces the history of, quote-unquote, organic food, too. Um, you have, like, yeah, the first yeah. mention of it. Some, somebody used it in their, I think, their cookbook or something. Um, and then it continues throughout the story. So and, and and it wasn't just you know the the way people grew food, but like mm-hmm. the market for organic food. I mean, they started right. up farmers markets. Uh, they started up food co-ops. So they created this whole infrastructure for making the organic food industry uh, come into being. And then subver- and then unfortunately, sort of killing it <laughs> by, by like <laughs> making it too broad and so forth. That you know it has l- less meaning today, I think, than it used to. Um, yeah. Well, so much to say about this book, so much to to cover that we didn't even talk about yet. But it looks like we're about out of time for today. Um, I, thank you so much, Jonathan, for joining us. This is a really fun. Oh, thanks show. for having me on the show. It's delightful. Yeah, this is such a fun read. I hope everyone checks out Hippie Food. Um, just out from William Morrow this month. Um, I'm sure you'll be hearing more about it as well. But uh, thanks again, Jonathan, and congrats. And thanks, everyone at Heritage. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Thanks 
for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Never had no loving like this before